0: No one sees me as a, as a lesser athlete because I tore my hamstring when I was in high school or because I tore my elbow when I was in college. No one looks at me and says, well, because you had those physical challenges, you are lesser. And just because you experienced depression last year or right now, just because you have this injury to your brain right now, doesn't make you lesser. Every injury you ever had made you a better athlete. Every downtime I had, whether it was because of athletics or an injury or depression, I learn from it.
1: Welcome to United Conversations for Student Athletes, a Holinsky's Hope-powered podcast supporting the mental health of student athletes. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Nicholson. The athlete mindset is unique and one that helps athletes be successful. It often involves the fierce and relentless pursuit of a goal of achievement and possibly of a singular pursuit of one specific goal. Today, we have an athlete that is sharing his story about how achieving that one goal is a double-edged sword and wasn't all that he had cracked it up to be. So Steve Messler was a decathlete at University of Florida, and he had a number of injuries. And then after a career ending injury in his last year at Florida, that he was going to be a bobsledder. He will talk a little bit about how that happens because it's interesting, but he achieved that. In fact, He was a three-time Olympian. He was on the bobsled team that was the first team to win a world championship title in 50 years. He won gold a year later at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. That was the first gold medal that the U.S. had won in 62 years in bobsled. However, when he achieved that goal, well, it just didn't make the rest of his life perfect. And he's going to talk about that. Today, he's on the board of directors for the world's largest Olympic committee. But he also is the director of an amazing nonprofit that he created called Classroom Champions that pairs athletes with young school-age students to help them learn some of the athlete mindset that helps so many be successful. He has such a rich story and I'm so grateful that he's willing to share. So let's get going with today's conversation with Steve Messler. Steve, welcome to United.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Pumped to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to, uh, to have you here and to meet you. You were teammates with uh, one of my very close friends, Jamie Jenkins, down at Florida.
0: Here we go, Gators.
1: Yes. Such a small world.
0: Totally. It really. I mean, the sports world is so small. For better better or for worse,
1: absolutely. And and you've been around it for a minute, as they say, a little bit,
0: a little bit. Without, I mean, luckily we're on a you know an audio podcast, so my gray hairs don't come through. Right,
1: right. Me too, me too. But yeah, so that was early two thousands. It was nineties. Nineties.
0: Ninety six to two thousand. I graduated, graduated uh, with honors in two thousand December of two thousand from Florida.
1: Wow, and you were you had an injury towards the end of your,
0: I mean, that would be an understatement to say that I had, yeah. an injury. <laughs> I was uh, I was national champion in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to Florida, you know, wanted to go to wanted to go where the big fish swim.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and then I was hurt every single year, every mm-hmm. single year, I was ankle, 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 and then, uh, got creative and got my elbow, my fourth year, um, of eligibility down there and, and had to have Tommy John surgery at the end of my career.
1: Oh gosh. And that's a tough one. That's a oh, tough it was brutal.
0: One. It was terrible. <laughs> It was really, I mean, yeah, the the rehab on that thing is awful for all those pitchers out there and javelin throwers out there.
1: Yeah. But you didn't want your athletic career to be over by that. I mean, competing at an elite level.
0: Correct. I, you know, it's probably a lot of student athletes out there will, 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 you know, identify with this, which is I still remember to this day, I was sitting on my couch in Gainesville. It was August of 2000. I was, about two days out of Tommy John surgery. So still on some pretty heavy medication, which I blame the medication for my career, for my decade-long career in bobsled that followed it. (laughs) And I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, well, I guess this is it. I guess I was national champion in high school and I like was having these flashbacks to blowing my ankle out of the SEC championship meet in my freshman year. And then same thing, sophomore year, same thing, junior year. And then, you know, breaking, you know, busting my elbow in half, you know, tearing my ulnar collateral ligament my senior year. And I am sitting there. I'm like, well, I I get clearly sport is done. Mm. Clearly this is it. And I was just like, I don't want to think that I peaked when I was 17 years old. Yeah, I just can't, I can't imagine walking around the rest of my life thinking that that was the time when I was at my best athletically was when I was 17 and I had all these hopes and dreams. Like that's just, isn't going to sit well with me. And I had a guy named Jerry Clayton, who's now down at LSU, um, who left my junior year in college to go to Auburn. Um, and Jerry had this guy named Rob Olson who made the 1998 Olympic bobsled team after having been a track athlete under Jerry at, in Texas. And he compared us as athletes. And I always laughed, like literally just laughed it off. It's like, whatever coach, I'm a decathlete forward. Florida. I'm going to the summer Olympics. That's where I'm going. And sitting on that couch, I thought back and I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could do that bobsled thing. And I looked up the, you know, had to get on Yahoo. There was no Google back then. <laughs> oh, or, you know, Google wasn't the thing. It was right. just some weird name. Not that Yahoo is not a weird name. Um, <laughs> right. And I found the USOC, US Olympic committee. I emailed them and, you know, pecked away with my left arm, my bad arm and said, I'm this big, this strong, this fast. Can I do this? And if I can, like, let me know. And wow. I got an email back the next day and I started training and my mom was not a happy camper. My good Jewish mom was like, go get a job. Like, (laughs) I want to go do this thing. Um, And I started training and I realized that if I was going to do this, uh, I was going to have to change the way I looked at sport and looked at the Mm. world and looked at myself. But I realized as I was sitting on the couch, I realized, well, I couldn't, I didn't get it done when I was at Florida. And I had this huge support staff that their jobs were to help me be successful in sport and in school and I didn't I was successful in school but I wasn't successful in sport how was I going to go do this competing against men who are looking you know pursuing their dreams with their families and it came down to I just had to do things differently it had I had to look and say the way I was doing things I thought I was doing things pretty well and pretty right Well, if that didn't work for me, I was going to have to change things. And one of those things for me was injuries and how I dealt with injuries clearly. Mm -hmm. And I had actually been banned from the training room in the middle of my senior year, two weeks before I blew my elbow out. I'd been banned from the training room because I was going there too much. I did the thing all the coaches tell us to do, right? Everybody out there, which is if you have a little feel a little thing in your hamstring, you don't keep going. You go get it worked on. And eventually I would be warming up and I'd be looking for those little things. And you can always find something.
1: Oh, for sure. Especially as an athlete.
0: Especially as an athlete, you could always find something just a little bit wrong. And I would go in and I remember just saying to myself, I'm just going to stop getting hurt after, you know, when I started training for bobsled, I'm just going to not get hurt anymore. You know, easier said than done. Yeah. And it really tested me. One of the first times I, w- I was training, it was about seven o'clock at night in Gainesville, you know, at dusk, I had you know, my big RoboCop race on from, mm-hmm. you know, I was past post, maybe four or five weeks post Tommy on surgery. So I could move my arm and swing it. And I was doing like 10 by 50 meter sprints, sprint, walk back, sprint, walk back. And I can remember about two or three in my hamstring twinged a little bit. And I did the turn my right shoulder. If anybody's been to Florida, I was on the, on the hundred meter stadium side and I was going against the grain and I took my, turned my right shoulder and headed towards the training room. And I realized it's seven o'clock at night.
1: Mm.
0: No one's there. I'm not on the team anymore. No one's here to help me. And I told myself, I'm not going to get it hurt anymore. So screw it. And I walked back and I did another 50 and I walked back and I did another 50. And then that was the moment I realized maybe the way that I was doing it before didn't work. And I wound up spending the next 10 years in bobsled going to three Olympic games. And I did not miss one race for the country and in a sport that is way harder on your body, inarguably harder on your body than track and field. And it came because I made a mindset switch and I wouldn't have believed it at that time at 20 years old or 21 years old, you know, some luck definitely worked in there over the decade. And it's not that I didn't get hurt. It's not that I, you know, have a broken finger and separate shoulder and all these other things, but the timing of it, I didn't have to miss any racing.
1: That's pretty awesome. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Murphy's law. Yep. If anything can go wrong, it probably will. Mm-hmm. I have a bumper sticker that I love. Uh, yeah. If something can go right, it probably will. Because statistically, if you're looking for what's going wrong, you will find it. And uh, just to switch that mindset to it's all right, things are going well. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. A big and that,
0: one. it's a really big one and it's mm. hard to do. It's hard yeah. to do. Cause as an athlete, you spend your I spent my a lot of my time trying to fix problems. Mm-hmm. Trying to, that's I mean, I did a TED talk once. So it was like wake up every day with a problem and just try to fix it and just try to solve yeah. it, which ultimately in the long term is a bit of a toxic approach because you can't fix all your problems. Right. And you can't do that. So I've been able to switch that mindset a little bit more too, but as an athlete, all you guys are out there, like I'm not strong enough. I'm going to go into the gym and work harder. I'm not fast enough. I'm going to go on the track and run more. I can't, you know, I'm dropping too many balls. I'm going to go catch. I'm going to go try to figure that out. And that kind of mindset is really, really helpful up to a point. And you have mm-hmm. to be able to balance it
1: for sure. I think there's a lot of athletes that don't really, and this is not just physically and technically, but also emotionally, they don't look at their strengths and work to improve on them. Mm-hmm. And yep. to create a, a game, meaning like their life around their strengths Yeah, it's like Absolutely. just focus on fixing and we're, we're yeah. kind of naturally got into your story and why you're here. So one thing that stood out to me, 2001, you make this call <laughs> in, uh, in, in Florida, but then one year, like 2002, you were already an alternate. For the Olympic yeah.
0: Games. Bobsled's one of those sports that you can as a push athlete, you're a horse.
1: Yeah.
0: And I mean, Herschel Walker, a football player, NFL, big time mm-hmm. NFL player back in the 90s and 80s. Um, you know, he came out, you know, made made the Olympic team in bobsled as well. You know, Willie Galt, another guy, another NFL player, another big time NCAA college football player, yeah. came out. So, like you can, I would take a bobsledder and put them up against anybody in the NFL in the combine, as long as you don't make us go sideways. Or anything like that, (laughs) but vertical 40 yard power, clean squats, things like that. Um, incredible athletes in the sport of bobsled, which means if you're a great athlete and you can be adaptable, which there was 40 athletes of 10 guys on the Olympic team in 2002, there was four of us that were NCAA athletes, but the other four guys were 8,000 plus guys or the other three guys. And you had to be adaptable. So I was, yeah. you know, fortunate to be able to be put in that. There was also a whole lot of positive drug tests my first year. So all of a sudden the top 20 guys, four of them, got removed from the pool for that. Mm. And that's you know, that was the world I entered into was oh my God, like what a what am I entering into here that this is the way this game is played?
1: Yeah. Well, the the other difference from track and field to bobsled is there's a lot more adrenaline with yeah. the the bobsled
0: for those of you out there who, who, you know, aren't bobsled aficionado, aficionados. I mean, our job is to become big, strong, fast horses mm-hmm. who are, and you gotta be big. You can't be 180 pounds. You gotta be heavy. Cause if the weight's not on you, it's in the sled. Cause there's a, it's gravity. So you need, there's a, a maximum weight of 630 kilos. So like 1400 ish pounds. Um, and then a minimum weight for the sled. So the guys have to thick, you know, squeeze into that, that gap there. So you are. I was, you know, with my peak like 215 pounds. I could run a like a low fours forty, and then you're pushing this hundreds of pounds of sled, jumping in with four other guys, and then you're sliding down European mountains going 90 miles an hour and doing it every day. Like it's yeah. it's intense, and you're your own pit crew as well. So it's really blue collar uh, mm-hmm. because these sleds are so big. It takes the size guy you are when you're a bobsledder, the size woman you are when you're a bobsledder to move these things. Yeah. So you can't just have a mechanic who is a hundred, you know, Frank, our, our mechanic was 150 pound old Italian guy. Like he couldn't lift the sled by himself. So we also had to do all of that. So it was a very hands-on, hands-on career as opposed to track and field where all the track athletes out there, you know, can you imagine warming up in a parking lot with <laughs> ice and snow all over it? We wouldn't yeah. do anything if it was, unless it was perfect grass or track. Mm-hmm. We're not warming up on a parking lot and right. yet in bobs yet in bobsled, you're at the top of a mountain. And if you have a fresh asphalt, you are very, very happy.
1: Nice. So you have this uh, realization. You don't want to have peaked at 17. You yeah. have ambition to um, achieve. And so you start down this path and the goal was the gold medal. And the pursuit of that, that is why you're here is to talk about that pursuit and what it was like to obtain it. Because I don't think that it is what many athletes expect when they set out on their pursuit of their, whatever the gold medal is for them. Yep.
0: Yeah. No, it, it is. It's a, um, I mean, the goal was making the Olympics mm-hmm. and then just like anything else, any other competitive soul out there, as soon as you hit your goal you kind of take it for granted because if you could do it, of course, how hard could it be? And we all have that. Like, you know, everybody out there, I'm positive 99% of the student athletes that are listening right now, your guys' goal was likely to compete in the NCAA. Mm. That was a huge thing in high school to go and actually get to compete in the NCAA. And Now that you're here, how does it feel? It feels normal. It's, it's just, it's the day-to-day grind. Maybe sometimes you have that moment where you stop. Same thing happens once you make the Olympics become an Olympian. you're like, okay, great. what's the next thing? Winning. I want to win. And for me, that was the you know the driver from the moment, you know moment I walked in opening ceremonies in Salt Lake City in 2002, five months after 9/11, where like it was the first time the country breathed, I want more of this. Like this is the thing I want more of. Mm-hmm. And I was wholly focused on that for the next eight years um, through 2006 when we were you know supposed to medal, And we didn't. It wasn't if we were going to medal. It was simply what color. And we we wound up seventh, and it was terrible and disappointing. And the six, seven, eight months following that, I was experienced. What I wouldn't have been able to call depression at the time because we didn't in two thousand six. The word depression was for crazy people, you know. And I say that as somebody who's experienced that multiple times. Mm. But back in two thousand six, that wasn't a word you used. No, no way. You certainly would not say it within a sport context because in a sport like bobsled, like I said, I made the Olympic team right away. Think about all the guys that I jumped the line on. Yeah. It wasn't that there was only 10 people and I got ended at the 10 spot. I jumped the line ahead of guys that would have been doing it for a decade, wow. which means your job was, there was always people breathing down your throat and there right. was always there. So vulnerability was a negative. Mm. You couldn't get hurt. You couldn't get sick, anything like that. Because one day, not in a sled means somebody else jumping in that sled. If they go faster than you went last week, you're replaced. So vulnerability was pushed to the side and was buried deep down. And so certainly talking to, you know, admitting something like depression back then was not remotely, you know, that was seen as weakness back then, as Mm -hmm. opposed to today where we're finally living in a world where, you know, I am jumping the shark a little bit ahead of out of the, out of the journey story, but which is in essence, what I realized when I went through like my pretty deep, dark depression days in 2019, which is, this is like an injury my brain was injured. I couldn't make decisions. I live in a cognitive world now running an organization and sitting on a board for the Olympic committee. And that injury to my brain stopped me from being able to make decisions. It stopped me being able to make good decisions, any decisions. And once I recognized that that's what it was, I realized, well, if I had an injury in track, I would have a massage therapist and an acupuncturist and I have other things. And and I did that in bobsled as well. So for me, being able to destigmatize it for myself was the single most important part.
1: Right. And I'm so glad you did. Um, I'm so glad I did too. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, being able to speak to that encourages others always, you know, that's breaking down the stigma, right? Yep. And it's interesting because you came in seventh at the Olympics Yeah. and it's terribly disappointing, which, you know, the goal was to make it to the Olympics, but you had that goal. The goal, just the bar just moves, you know? Yep. And the other thing I'm aware of that was that's a really good point is once you get somewhere, say like, oh, I want to, you know, run in college, yeah. you are surrounded by people that are NCAA athletes. You are surrounded by people who are Olympians, whereas the average person maybe meets one Olympian in their lifetime or or two, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And then so all of a sudden, when you're surrounded by it, it's like, well, everybody. Because, you know, this is common, even though it's not, but your world is filled with it. So the bar has to raise because you want to be special in that.
0: And that's the, you know, anybody who's ever accomplished anything in this world lives and has that mindset.
1: Right.
0: So like, don't shed that mindset. Like the bar always moves because that's how the world moves forward. Yeah. Uh, We don't just get to, we don't get to, you know, climate net zero. And then be happy with that. Like if we ever hit that, we're going to want to do better. We're going to want to get, you know, go beyond that. And these huge long-term massive things, but then, you know, you're going to get the job you want because you're going to just work until you get there. And that's what sport gives. That's the gift that sport gives all of us. I mean, I've got a four and a half year old, you know, girl and I go out, you know, take her skiing every weekend and I get to watch her get better every week. And she gets bored if she's not challenged. And I love that in her. It's part of that scares me though, because I also know what that can turn into, But, you know, but having the bar, you know, recognizing the bar always moves is a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Recognizing it is the good part. Yes. Not recognizing it and just having it happen subconsciously and unconsciously. And that's when you get into tailspins.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that we miss the fact that you can do both. You can Mm -hmm. acknowledge your accomplishment and even risk feeling proud that, okay, I made it to the Olympics. I competed in the Olympics. And disappointed in the seventh place, knowing you want to, want to do more, but we tend to throw out the feeling of accomplishment, the acknowledgement, because it's not all we want.
0: And well, and I mean, a, I mean, I love what you said there, which is risk feeling proud. Mm -hmm. Like that is, it's really hard for athletes and competitive people to do. Uh, You know, I've met CEOs who have founded billion dollar companies. It's hard for them to like, feel proud of that because they're, they're afraid. And we're afraid as an athlete, we're afraid that if we feel proud about this, we're not going to work as hard for the next thing. Right. And that's the, that's the thing. I mean, I remember, and I, like, I have this and I, I, I don't put that down. I think that's true. And I think that's a good part of the driver because I do recognize that. And I mean, back in 2009, we were our team that won the gold medal in 2010 at the Olympics, our four-man team, Justin Olsen, Stephen Holcomb, and Kurt Thomasevich. The night train, um, the, the night train. And we'll get back to Stephen Holcomb here when we talk about mental health here shortly, yeah. but going into the year before we were at world championships um, in Lake Placid, the Americans hadn't won a gold medal in four-man bobsled in world championships in 50 years, five, zero years. Yeah, And we won that year by like a second, which is monstrous. That's like a 60 point victory in football. And I remember standing behind the podium. It was a beautiful sunny day, like thousands of people came to the track to watch my friends and family and like a hundred people from Buffalo and from New York, I like came up to tailgate and party and, and have a good time. And <clears throat> we're standing there and the German bobsledder who was like Andre Lange, who's like the greatest bobsledder of all time, who had won every Olympics since that he'd ever entered up, up until that point, you know, gotten silver and like, you know, stepped up and then it was our turn. And right before we jumped up onto the podium, there was on our team was, I was at the time 30, Holcomb and Thomas were 28. And then this guy, Justin Olson was a kid at 21 at the time. And I remember turning to him right before we got called and I turned to him and go, and this is his first world championships on USA one. This is his you know, second year in the sport. And I turned to him and I go, it's not this easy. I didn't even want him to enjoy that moment, which yeah. was wrong, but also that was the mindset. I didn't want him to think it was this easy because we still, because it didn't matter. We're in America. How many of you out there know that we won the world championships? No one knows, <laughs> nor cares. We're Americans. We? Winning the Olympics is the thing that gets us the, the thing we want. That's the that's the cherry on top of the pie. So with that, like I didn't want to risk feeling proud with him at that mm-hmm. moment, which in retrospect I don't think was necessary. <laughs> um, but as an athlete, we can all, I mean, everybody out there can think about the time in high school. You're like, I didn't need to not go and, you know, go to that house party with my friends. Like I could have gone and, you know, I could have just been responsible and, but you were disciplined and you didn't go. And, you know, it's really hard to second guess the things you did to get to where you are now. Cause I can look back and say, I should have, I didn't have to be that hard on them, but it worked. And it's hard to say, it's hard to second guess something that works.
1: Right. And it's hard to, to say, you don't have to sacrifice everything because sacrifice is part of the, the language in athletics too.
0: And I, and I think that's where, whether you're a student athlete or an Olympian, where thinking about the future, thinking about post-sport, whether sport goes the way you want or sport doesn't go the way you want. I think that's, that's like the Holy grail is, and I was not good at that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit here and admit that I was good at like setting up my life pro sport while I was doing, doing sport. I was 31 when I retired and I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. And again, I can look back in retrospect and know there were certain things I could have done and should have done that would have made the transition even better or smoother. But I think that like, to me, that's a big, that's one of the Holy grails of, of whether you're an NCAA student athlete, which is how do you focus on stay a hundred percent focused on sport and school while also thinking about what happens after it's really hard. Yeah. Especially when you're at a, at a sports-centric
1: college. Right. Yes. Well, so your pursuit of the gold medal, what did you think it was going to be like when you got there?
0: I, I'm positive somewhere out there I'm quoted on this, which is I would have said, and I did say, if I win a gold medal, I will be happy to sit homeless for the rest of my life with that gold medal sitting next to me on the, on the curb and I'll be happy. Hmm. And that's how I felt. Like I wanted it that badly, that it was a life culminating. Everything else would be fine. And all cupcakes and rainbows after that. And I truly believe that. And Hmm. I, and I don't discourage people and athletes. You have to want it that bad. For sure. You have to want it that bad, whether you are, whatever it is that you're going after, whether it's sport or whether it's business, you have to want it that bad. And you have to, I was on the phone the other day with a guy named Christian Taylor, who another gator, actually Christian sits on my board for classroom champions, and he's a two-time Olympic gold medalist in triple jump. The only person to have done that. Um, Mm. He's still, he's still competing and still training. Somehow we were talking, we were talking about some of the state of the Olympic world right now, Mm. where we're seeing some issues across the board. I wrote a piece in the guardian, Jeff Porter, and I wrote a piece in the guardian the day after closing ceremonies about the structure of the Olympics. Mm. And Christian, I were talking about that and. But there's this thing that we share as athletes, this common bond, which is tomorrow is the next most important day for training. Hmm. And then tomorrow is, and then tomorrow is because you know that if you're an athlete, whether you're going to the Olympics or whether you're a student athlete worrying about next season, you know, that you can't just glide for the next three months and then show up and start to train. Like tomorrow has to be the next important, most important day of training. You got to work as hard as you can tomorrow. Hmm. And then you have dinner and then tomorrow is the next most important day. And that mindset doesn't really change once you leave sport, you, you, you use that in, in business, you use that. And that's why you'll be successful as a student athlete coming out that mindset transfers. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I want to hire. Um, we hire a lot with classroom champions is filled with this custom champions, a nonprofit that I'd started when I was still competing that now is a team of about 15 to 20 people and, and works with millions of kids across North America. And, um, we hire tons of, of athletes because that's the mentality that we want. To have, but it's also the mentality that will, if you're not conscious of it and you're not able to like recognize it, it will cause significant mental health issues yeah. because every day can't be the most important day.
1: Right. So yeah. what was that like once you got that medal?
0: About three weeks later, I was thinking about what I was going to do again. Mm-hmm. Next. It was nice. It was relieving because I was able to say, what am I going to do? But at the same time, it was actually, there was a relieving part of it because you could have gone back five years and asked me, you know, what will you be doing on Tuesday, two years from now? I'd be like, I'll be training. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do you be doing four years from now? I'll be training. So it was, it was releasing to not know what was going to come, what was coming. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what I learned was, oh man, this wasn't, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I knew better, like, I'm sure if you would have actually unpacked it with me, but I actually have said, I would have been happy on the curb for the rest of my life, but I never unpacked it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where, that's where I went wrong is I never actually unpacked it. What does it mean to hit that goal? Oh, it means I could sit on the curb the rest of my life. Everybody smiles, laughs, and then they move on Yeah. as opposed to asking the next question and the next question and actually unpacking it and going, and it doesn't, it won't diminish the want for that thing. It will just say, oh, actually, you're right. Maybe I should get my MBA because I have nothing but time because I'm a bobsled athlete. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm done. Right. done training. I mean, I got nothing to do. I'm living in a foreign country. I was living in Canada. I can't work. I can't do these things. Maybe I should do some online school, um, which was a little less accessible, obviously, in the 2000s. Right. Um, but I will say that, and I've had this conversation again with people who have sold their company for $2 billion. I've had this conversation with people who have won a Super Bowl. I've had this conversation with people who have won a gold medal in figure skating. Everybody has that feeling and nobody feels fulfilled
1: mm-hmm.
0: when they accomplish that thing. Because if you felt fulfilled when you accomplished that thing, you were probably going to be like everybody else and you never would have gotten to where you are anyway. So people who are built to do big things are built differently and- that's great. That's awesome. But on the flip side, you know, for me, it took me a little while for it to hit bottom. And also in a sport like bobsled, a lot of head trauma. So I was mm-hmm. more susceptible to the things like depression. Um, I mean, I've buried at 43 years old now I've buried way more teammates and mm-hmm. people I've competed against than I possibly would have imagined Stephen Holcomb. As I mentioned earlier, you know, Hulky, somewhere between took his own life and, and not you know, alcohol and, and, uh, sleeping meds Mm -hmm. didn't wake up one night. Another teammate of mine, a guy named Pavley Jovanovic, who was on my team in 2006, about two months into the pandemic, you know, his brother walked in their family welding shop and probably was hanging there by a chain. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of things where I slid in the Olympics with six people and two of them have killed themselves, which means I'm built the same as them. I've had the same habit trauma as them. They're, they are me. I am them. So when I experienced my depression in 2019, my wife luckily is a psychologist or has a psychology background and she was able to recognize it I mean I was uh, a <clears throat> you know I'm somebody who wakes up at 5 30 in the morning to go downstairs we have a gym in our basement I work out you know I'm showered and ready to go by 7 730 and I was getting up at 5 30 and then I was making it to the couch in the living room halfway down um, and then I was a puddle on the couch
1: mm.
0: I was a you know at that point about 40 years old, 39 years old driven. You know, I sat at the time and I still sit on the Olympic board of directors of the United States Olympic and Paralympic committee. I, you know, run a nonprofit that is, you know, that is, you know, millions of dollars that, you know, reaches millions of kids that works with student athletes and, you know, works with Olympians and Paralympians and student athletes and football and pro football players and NHL players to work with kids across the country and teach them social, emotional skills, you know, mental health skills. And I, there I was like a puddle on my couch and my wife would come down and, and find me. And after a few weeks, she, you know, recognized it for what it was. And I had, to, I went to the doctor and, you know, my family doctor who knew me and, and he had said, all right, well, let's, you know, let's talk about what's happening. And he gave me, you know, gave me a little self self-reflection form is like, you know, Will, I'm not, I do not like medication. I'm not a medic, a medication person. So I will avoid medications as, as much as I can. And he's like, you know, so we'll do this. And then like, you know, look, if it's not getting any better, then we'll put, try you on some meds. And he's like, but first, you know, let's, let's fill this out. I filled this form out. He looks at it, looks at me. And he said, do you feel confident about your answers here? I said, yes. He's like, I'm gonna write you a prescription right now. And you are going to go and you're going to get, um, I can't remember what it was, but it was more of a low level anxiety mm-hmm. drug. And then it was something that was more, that was stronger for for, for deeper bouts. And he said, we, we have to get control of this right now. And I, you know, I had moments where I, Can remember walking. I live in Calgary. I Moved up here to train back in 2003, and you know I can remember times where being downtown and the C train, our you know our light rail goes by, and I can remember times thinking maybe it's easier to get in front of that thing. And I'd never, like, I cannot, Josie, I cannot, (laughs) I cannot say it loud enough. I had never experienced anything close to that. Right. I had a stigma for people who took their lives. I had a stigma for people who like couldn't get off the couch and like just couldn't do it. Cause I was an athlete and I just did it.
1: Right.
0: It's game. It's game time. It's one mm-hmm. o'clock. It doesn't matter what's happening. The race starts at or one. How you feel, how you feel doesn't matter. No. Don't be sick. Don't be hurt. It's one o'clock. It's race day. Go period. Yeah. I mean, I can remember Justin Olson, the kid on the team Olympic year. Um, we're sitting in Innsbruck, Austria and He'd, had, he'd been having a bit of a hamstring issue, and he sat down. It was race day. It was four-man race day, and he sat down across from me at breakfast. I was like, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, mess, my hamstring's hurting a little bit. And I was like, you racing today? He's like, yeah. I was like, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, my hamstring's a little bit. How you doing? You racing today? Yeah. How you doing? I'm good, mess. Yep. It didn't matter. I didn't care. There was yep. zero empathy, zero empathy. Fast forward, and- Upside down,
1: mm.
0: an upside down experience for me. So, like, I'm saying this not as somebody who was like, who was call it touchy feely, right. whatever you want, whatever stigma term you want to say. Mm-hmm. I was not that. And when you experience something, it, you know, it's unfortunate for me that I had to experience it to understand it and to mm-hmm. empathize with it and be able to figure out how to help other people. But once I navigated and figured out how to experience it and I was able to connect it to a physical thing and I realized my brain's not working and it's, Mm -hmm. it's broken right now. And I've had other people push back. Oh, my brain's not broken. That helped me. Yes. That worked for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important thing. When I, when I work with a lot of athletes now who, who experience these things in the midst of competing and training and there's research, there's talking to people, but you have to find the way that connects it in your brain to do the things you need to do to get out of it.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Well, and I'm just struck by so much in your story and how it's so similar. There's an identity theme, right? Yeah. So yep. you were in pursuit of this thing. And one thing I'll mention too, is I've found that when people struggle with that kind of empathy, when it does happen to them, it's very difficult to have empathy for yourself. Yes. <laughs> that is Yeah, so-
0: absolutely. And that's the worst spiral that you right. can get into. I was, uh, you know, I went into after bobsled. So post bobsled, post winning gold medal, I like did motivational speaking. And I like actually like I had on my business card said motivational speaker and consultant. I had no idea what consultant meant at the time. <laughs> But I had somebody, a guy named Mark Fitzgerald who's now the, the CEO of Petronas uh, here in Canada. And he saw a consultant on my card, and we went to lunch and I and did it. And all of a sudden I was into consulting. It was the best experience for me. At 31, I was entering the workforce. Going into consulting was a fantastic way to have a really steep learning curve. And, uh, you know, got into and really understood, e, you know, emotional intelligence and EQ and MBTI, Myers-Briggs, MBTI. It was the first time I'd ever experienced those things. And we did a a colors in a circle one where it was an EQ test. And on there, I, like the two different kinds of empathy, I scored about as low as you possibly could get. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And you know what, for me, it was validating. I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm low empathy. And what happened was the problem with it was, is it made it okay for me to have low empathy. Mm -hmm. Well, this is just who I am. And it's made me
1: successful.
0: It made me. It's made me successful. Lack of vulnerability, lack of empathy has made me successful. So clearly, that's the thing that will make me successful moving forward since that's the thing that made me successful moving back you know, in the past. That lack of empathy and lack of vulnerability is one of those things that may or may not be good for you in sport, but is definitely toxic for you out of sport. Some things transfer really easily, like that drive, like that mindset. Some things transfer okay, and some things transfer very poorly. That was one. But for me, it was... And this is, I think, the trap a lot of people, especially younger people, fall into when they take those kinds of personality tests and assessments, Mm -hmm. which is, well, hey, look, don't ask me. I'm the guy with low empathy. Like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm the guy with low empathy. Right. And I used it as a crutch until I stopped and said, hold on, that should be like my right leg is weak and I just need to get my right leg stronger as opposed to I'm just going to climb the ladder on my left leg because my right leg's weak. That's what it's
1: saying. Right.
0: So using those things, and I'm sure I would assume that in student athlete world, those kinds of personality tests and things are used a little bit more broader. And, and if they are not, get, take them, find them because do that and then use it for the exact same thing you use your testing for, which is here are my strengths. I'm going to play to those, but here are my weaknesses and I'm going to work on those. Mm-hmm. So it took me about a year to, to gain that. Um, and I practiced it just like an athlete. I practiced it. I practiced it by not just going at the grocery store and, you know, saying hi to the person checking me out to the clerk. I would ask two more questions. That was Mm -hmm. me practicing my empathy. I would practice caring about how their day was.
1: Right.
0: And eventually I became, began to care how their day was. And I did that consciously to teach myself to train. I would open up emails with, I just want to get to the point in an email. Right. (laughs) I don't care how somebody's day is. Yeah but I've learned that I I need to care and I want to care and and I've opened my emails differently consciously. So.
1: However, when it came to you years later, you defaulted to that, that familiar behavior of uh, or thinking of Mm -hmm. what's wrong with you. Just get off the couch. Yeah. And why are you thinking this way? Or, you know, and and there's a, a theme of identity too. Like you had been, this pursuit. Like I am this person who is training for this goal. Yeah. And then you get the goal and you lose that identity. Yeah. That's so hard. Uh, Such a grief thing.
0: It, it, it is. And I think that it works both ways, whether you do or don't accomplish the goal. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the biggest takeaways for all of us out there, which is trust me, the feeling a year later after you win or don't win is actually the same. And mm-hmm. here's how I, here's how I know that another vivid, sad example. And I mentioned Pavly Jovanovic who um, commit, who committed suicide. Well, probably was on our 2016 <clears throat> with me um, slid in the slide, got seventh place and then lost the spot a couple of years later and wasn't on our gold medal team. So mm-hmm. he didn't get his goal a decade, you know, decade and a half later succumbed to mental health, Jared Speedy Peterson who was a freestyle aerialist. Well, Speedy was on all three Olympic teams with me, 02, 06, and 10. And Speedy got a silver medal in in Vancouver in 2010. A year later, in the summer of 2011, Speedy called the police in Park City and let them know where they could find his body. And he went out mm-hmm. and killed himself between Park City and Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. So it can't be whether you won or lost. That's the thing that causes those issues. Mm-hmm. So what must, what, what must it be? It made me like really start to explore when Pavle um, passed away, it really made me stop and go, okay, like, this is both ends of the spectrum now. Like, right. What, what can it be? And what it is, is what you said there, which is, it's actually the loss of the identity. It's loss of the thing, yeah. you know, you student athletes out there you've had from probably high school. So you've probably spent five to 10 years with carrying this thing with you. And the thing that you carried with you is like your baby, your baby causes you to go to bed earlier. Causes you to wake up earlier, causes you to eat better, causes you to take care of yourself, causes you to go to school sometimes. <laughs> your whole athlete, life revolves around whole, it. whole life. I mean, the, the mm. you know, thank goodness for sport in college, or else I would have probably you know done a little worse at some classes. <laughs> um, and you're carrying this this thing mm. around with you, and it becomes part of you, and you love that. You you live you live for for that thing, and it, it it's where most of your friends come from. All of these things. And then whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter because that thing, you no longer carry it around. And that's the thing we mourn. That's the thing that causes what's called the Olympic hangover, which is Mm -hmm. every Olympian and Paralympian goes through it after this huge moment, this huge journey, it ends. And whether it ends positively or negatively, it doesn't matter. It ends. And you're, you're, you wind up mourning the loss of the thing because the the moment, the winning or losing is one moment in time.
1: Yeah.
0: It is one day.
1: Yeah
0: with maybe an afterglow of a week or two,
1: but then it's the past,
0: but it was 15 years or for me, it was 20 years. So what is going to, what is, what are you going to mourn more? The loss of the loss or the gain of this one thing that happened on one day or the Mm -hmm. thing you did for 20 years.
1: Right. So when you carry around that baby of that goal, that, you know, your performance and then it's no longer there. If you don't have anything that's about you, And more than just that, winning or losing, or you know, achieving this thing. Yep. Gosh, that's it's like you're stuck and you're alone because you really don't even have yourself.
0: And it's and it's yep. And and it's easy to do because it's the thing you're told you need to do. Mm -hmm. You need to be focused. Yes, it's the thing all of you guys out there. You had people, your club coaches, your high school coaches. You have to focus. You probably had to stop doing other sports, but that's the thing you, you did the things you needed to do to succeed. But I think, and that's where classroom champions has come from and worked with so many, you know, over 300 Olympians and Paralympians and NCAA student athletes and and NFL and NHL players where I recognized what we were, what you were saying earlier, which is like all of my friends were Olympians and it was awesome. It was like the thing my sister and I, uh, would have dreamt about. My sister was a few years younger than me. She did, we did junior Olympics track running, you know, growing up, we went to the Atlanta Olympics in '96. And like ran around the stadium looking for Olympians to take pictures with. And all of a sudden it was summer of 2009. And I was one of those people. I Mm -hmm. was a two-time Olympian going to my third Olympics. I was the favorite person. I was going to be all over NBC. My sister at the time was getting her PhD in education and had been a teacher. My degree was in phys ed and health. And I was a teacher and our parents were teachers. And we thought, Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I really want to do something. I have one more year left. I knew I was going to retire. I really want to do something with my career. And I'm tired of school visits. I'm tired of school visits. You go mm-hmm. in, I give a talk. These kids don't know who I am. I'm not famous. Um, they're told they should be excited because I'm an Olympian or I'm a Gator or whatever it is. But they don't know me. I give them a talk and I leave. And maybe like, you know, if you went back 30 days later, maybe they remember they get out of math class someday, yeah. but I didn't really make a difference as an athlete. Everything I do is purposefully making a difference. Yeah. So we decided that we wanted to create relationships with kids, kids in under kids in you know challenge circumstances and high need circumstances learn from people they know and they trust. And so what we did was we used technology. I was a tech geek at the time and we connected with kids like a 21st century pen pals. And then I Skyped with the kids from the Olympic villages after video back and forth all season long. And then I went and visited the kids and it was a different experience. And mm-hmm. fast forward to today, and Classroom Champions is a nonprofit that you know works with thousands of schools. And provides them what's called social and emotional learning curriculum and mentorship, and we work with athletes and we give them a way to give back in a way that is consistent, doesn't interfere with training because we use technology to do it. Um, there's a club at University of Pennsylvania that that runs it. There we have you know students at William and Mary that student athletes at William and Mary that do it, and for these student athletes and these athletes, it's amazing they get to be part of something that is beyond themselves. Mm-hmm. But they're not just like putting their name on it to be like a poster child. They're not just going and doing one thing. Like they're actually teaching kids how to set goals, the X's and O's of goal setting, persevering, you know, perseverance, community, how we as athletes think about these things. We open up a gateway between schools and athletes. And now schools use this as a curriculum. uh, And we see actually like incredible things happen. Attendance goes up. Uh, And attendance is more, in middle school, attendance is more predictable of high school graduation than test scores are. And we see attendance going up because these athletes help create a community and kids want to be there when they're doing classroom champion stuff during the school day. Uh, We work with kindergarten through eighth grade and our athletes who do this, whether they're the student athletes who who do it or our Olympians or our NFL players, all of them, 100% of them say that it helps them through downtimes. It helps them because in essence, every time they, they create messages for their kids or go back and forth, they're giving themselves a mini Ted talk anyway. They're reminding themselves why they do these things. And then they're actually seeing kids in, in challenge circumstances, like do these things in class. And the teacher's post it on our internal network. So for all of you out there, go to classroomchampions.org, fill out a contact form and message. And if you want to bring it to your schools where we work with schools and students, student athletes to bring this to their, to their athletic departments um, and their schools. And it's, um, And it's amazing for the community, but again, it's really amazing for the athletes as well.
1: Well, and being of service is a massive way to boost your mental health.
0: Yeah. An incredible amount of amazing new research is showing that.
1: Yeah. So student athletes can go to the website, fill out a contact form and create a club like Penn has.
0: It's not, it's not quite so plug and play, but they will reach out. We'll reach out. We're still figuring out the NCAA model. We've been doing it with Olympians and Paralympians for a long time, and we're still figuring out the NCAA model. But again, the Penn and the Penn and William and Mary student athletes have been like great, you know, guinea pigs to, to help figure out how to make it all work on campus. So it becomes self-sustaining and less expensive um, for you know for it to operate. But we're always looking for for athletes to to get involved that are in essence, like the only qualification is you got to be going after it. Yeah. Like full time, whether you're a student athlete or whether you're an Olympian or whether you're an NFL player, if you're getting after it full time. We think that you have a lot to offer to you know the curriculum and the development of kids in the country.
1: What an awesome thing to be a part of. Very, very cool. Um, Steve, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for all your insight and sharing your story and taking a crack at stigma, by sharing your story and all that. Yeah
0: you know, you're welcome. and thanks for having on. I mean, it's always great to realize we live in a world now where we can talk about this stuff mm-hmm. and and not be judged. And I think we're entering a time now where just because you experienced depression last year or right now, just because you have this injury to your brain right now, doesn't make you lesser. Everybody out there knows every injury you ever had made you a better athlete. Yes. And I can say that every downtime I had, whether it was because of, you know, athletics or an injury or depression, I learned from it. The athlete mindset forces us to learn from our, learn from our challenges and you guys who are out there listening right now, again, you're fortunate because you have this, you have this built-in mindset and some of you may not feel it right now. Like some of you may be sitting there right now in one of those troughs and not feeling it. And that's okay. If you're there right now, think about the last time you were hurt and injured in sports yeah. and think about what you did to get out of that and just, and start there. So thanks for, thanks for doing this, Josie. Thanks for the podcast. Thanks for all of this. And it was a good time. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thanks for your time and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. Again, a huge thank you to Steve Messler, as well as our producer, Graham Doty and our editor, Chelsea Battle. If you're struggling at this time, please reach out to family, friends, or a licensed mental health professional in your area. And we want to hear from you about topics that you want to hear about. So please reach out to us at info at holinskyshope.org. Let us know what would be helpful for you or your fellow athletes to hear about. Share this podcast with anyone you believe would be helped by it. Subscribe to it, rate it, and review it because it helps other athletes find the podcast. If you would like to know more about Holinsky's Hope, including how to donate to help with all that they're doing to support student-athlete mental health and reduce the stigma that surrounds mental illness, visit www.holinskyshope.org. Please take care of yourself, please take care of others, and always have hope.